You gotta start doing research on these before you start. You know, the coffee hasn't kicked in yet, <sighs> so uh, we're just gonna go with it. Um, Welcome to Chronically Narnia, the podcast in which my co-host and I discuss the Chronicles of Narnia chapter by chapter, and today we are discussing chapter two of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. This chapter is titled, On Board the Dawn Treader. Uh, I, of course, am the difficult-to-remember Lord Hroop, also known as Kristen, and this is my co-host... I'm a uh, half-elf paladin who follows the oath of... Oh, wait. I was looking at the wrong book. Uh, I'm Lord Octasian. Ah! <laughs> who, who may very well be a half-elf paladin. For all we know. <laughs> anyway, I'm also known as Chris. Chris. I think we have established in this podcast that there have been no references to elves in Narnia of Correct. any kind. Dwarves, giants, yes. Yep. Elves, no. Yep. Talking badgers. Centaurs. No elves. Centaurs are the elves of this world, I guess. It does feel that way a little bit. They're the, the like, ageless, like, watchers of the stars. But that's what they always are. Like, that's what centaurs are. Yeah, I don't know. I was like... They're filling that kind of knowledge and aged gap. But I feel like also, so is the badger, who's like, we badgers remember. Yeah. Lewis read Lord of the Rings and was just like, I like the elves. I just, I want more legs. (laughs) Uh, oh, anyway. So, uh, today we're discussing Chapter 2 of Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Stuff's really getting going now. It's getting going. They're in Narnia now. C.S. Lewis really likes boats. He does. <laughs> boats and horses. like. <sighs> yep. But I feel like if you had a book that you were writing that you actually did a lot of research on, that yeah. you would probably show off your knowledge a little <laughs> bit, even unintentionally. Uh-huh. And just being like, well, I mean, obviously, you would think it would be smoky on the ship if the uh, kitchen was up in the front. But you have to remember that on a ship with a sail, the wind's coming from behind you and pushing you along. So all the smelly stuff goes in the front of the ship. It's not like those (laughs) steamships you're used to. Yeah. So with all of that said, let's go ahead and go into our summaries. Um, as you may know if you've listened before, and uh, I'll share if you haven't, we each read through the chapter and pick out five sentences in an attempt to summarize the chapter as a whole and um, using the chapter's own words. So, uh, Chris, do you want to go ahead and do yours first? Yes. Uh, also, if you haven't listened before, stop this right now and go back and listen to like at least episode one of this book. This is a weird place to start. <laughs> Um, anyway, mine's really long. We'll see if we can get through this successfully. All right, my summary. Well, on my coronation day, with Aslan's approval, I swore an oath that if once I established a peace in Narnia, I would sail east myself for a year and a day to find my father's friends or to learn of their deaths and avenge them if I could. Then, said Reepicheep, it is after the Lone Islands that the adventure really begins. Eustace, of course, would be pleased with nothing, and kept on boasting about liners and motorboats and aeroplanes and submarines, as if he knew anything about them, muttered Edmund. 
but the other two were delighted with the Don Treader, and when they returned off the cabin for supper and saw the whole western sky lit up with an immense crimson sunset and felt the quiver of the ship and tasted salt on their lips and thought of unlands on the eastern rim of the world, Lucy felt that she was almost too happy to speak. The trouble between Eustace and Reepicheep arrived even sooner than might have been expected. <laughs> he apologized sulkily and went off with Lucy to have his hand bathed and bandaged and then went to his bunk. We're going to talk about that moment. I want to come back <laughs> to that moment. But yes. All right. So here's my summary. Okay. Well, on my coronation day... <laughs> With Aslan's approval, I swore an oath that if once I established peace in Narnia, I would sail east myself for a year and a day to find my father's friends or to learn of their deaths and avenge them if I could. I expect to find Aslan's own country. I'm a pacifist. Do I understand, said Reepicheep, withdrawing his sword for a moment and speaking very sternly, that you do not intend to give me satisfaction. Then take that, said Reepicheep, and that to teach you manners and the respect due to a knight and a mouse and a mouse's tail. And at each word he gave Eustace a blow with the side of his rapier, which was thin, fine, dwarf-tempered steel and as supple and effective as a birch rod. Okay, so you went a very different direction with the summary. Like, I did. usually we, we get pretty similar in like what we think the chapter is all about. This one we're very different. Well, uh, so I you feel like the very fact that on. we, like, in this chapter got like Eustace's journal entry mm -hmm. really kind of directed me to follow Eustace in this a lot more than mm -hmm. the rest of the cast yeah. of the ship. I feel, yeah. Uh, you're going to like my summary a lot. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I focused much more on like the adventure as a whole, I think. Um, so anyway, let's get into this chapter, On Board the Dawn Treader. This is, I believe, uh, the longest chapter that we've yet encountered in the series so far. Yeah, it's a little long. Yeah. And but not. it didn't, I mean, we both got very different summaries, but we also yeah. were able to fully hit everything, I think, yeah. between our two summaries. So yeah. it wasn't like... It was a really, really dense chapter. It was just a really long one. Yeah, lots of descriptions. And in my book, it's 16 pages. Wow. Yeah. In mine, it's like five. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have, a, you have a big old book. Yeah. Uh, that has to fit, like, the entire series in it. Um, anyway, so we start off back on the Dawn Treader. We're going on our adventure, and we learn why they've taken off in the first place. Uh, and as you might have surmised from our summaries, uh, Caspian is out there and trying to hunt down his father's friends. And you were right on that point of your baseless speculation from last week, which was something that you had guessed about being a possibility for this journey. Yeah, seemed uh, seemed pretty straightforward, you know, especially since like chapter three is called The Lone Islands. Yeah. It's like, I have a feeling we're going there for some reason. I don't know why. Um, but yeah, we finally learned the names of all the lords that set out. Um, Revelian, Burn, Argos, Mavramorn, <laughs> Octessian, Restamar, and which one did he forget? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah Roop. Yeah. 
It's like Burn and Roop are the two that would be difficult to remember out of that list, right? No. You would think so. Mavramorn. Uh, yeah, so he, he pledged he was going to go out and find these guys um, with with Aslan's approval, which I think is weird, because, like, hey, during the coronation ceremony, Caspian's just like, hey, Aslan, so I, I kind of want to go find these seven dudes that I've never met before. You cool with that? And he's just like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, <sighs> I mean, I think it's important to note that, like, Caspian really wanted to have Aslan's approval on this kind of journey and, like, Aslan's blessing on it. Yeah. Um. And then also we discuss how much time has passed between the first book with Caspian, uh, yep. Prince Caspian, and this book with King Caspian. And you you had guessed that it was probably like around three years of Narnia time, and you were right. Well, we I had estimated that. that it had to be anywhere from one year to like four or five years because he was still referred to as a boy. Yeah. And so... Based on his age, it had to be around three years. So now he's probably like 16, 17. Yeah. Um, and Edmund and Lucy have only aged one year. Uh-huh. Um, just, like, like boring human children. I know, right? Uh-huh. Um, but we, we had kind of tried to figure out how much time would have needed to pass for King Caspian to have established, like it, in our baseless speculation time, how much time would have needed to pass for King Caspian to establish his rule. Yeah. In order to be comfortable leaving Narnia. Yeah. So, and we also find out who he left Narnia in the hands of. Who's the regent that he left behind to watch Narnia? It's Trumpkin. Oh, the uh-huh. DLF. Yeah, he, he's back. He's he's looking over Narnia. Will Trumpkin become the new Tumnus figure? We'll, we'll see, you know. We've got real sequel energy going on <laughs> in this in this book, though. Uh, we do. We do have uh, things following up um, from the previous book. Um, before we really get into this, here is my big plot hole generating question that I want to find out about because uh, it does tie in here because there it says somewhere and I can't find the exact line, but they're just like, yeah, I mean, Telmarines hate the ocean. Like they never wanted to sail. Uh, even the the seven lords that went out to you know explore whatever's off the eastern sea, they had to borrow ships from this other people that we just get introduced to. Not at that point. Okay, so what what happens? We discuss the entire voyage that um, King Caspian has taken thus far. They've been on their way for about a month, and the first place that they stopped at was uh, Galma, I believe. Yes, and they had hired. Galmarine ships mm-hmm. so that they obviously like though that's the closest place and yep. they were able to hire ships from there yes uh the lords you're talking about yes yeah. yeah so this is this is my question the telmarine's been in Narnia for a thousand years the dudes Ish. lords went up to Galma to get ships to go off and sail across the eastern ocean uh you know telmarine's not not huge fan of uh, I'm trying to think of a word the nautical lifestyle I guess even though they're former pirates which is interesting to me that's something we didn't really touch on in the last book uh, that they they're descended from pirates and now hate the ocean uh, <laughs> I I brought it up okay so my question is where did Caspian learn how to build a ship because from like the, from the Galma from also from probably from the badgers who remember <laughs> things like oh, 
There's, it's not like boats are hard to figure out. The, the, uh, no, no, no. The, <sighs> I'm saying, the Telmarines had boats on the river. Well, they had like rowboats. I don't know if they had like an actual like. Yeah, but they they knew the concept of building a boat for river sailing. Yes. Uh, and and getting off the coast as far as Galma. Yeah. Because they obviously had some kind of relationship with Galma at some point. Because they were able to get the ships. New land, by the way, we didn't that, that we've never heard about before in the entire series. Yes, and Galma is actually the closest. It's closer than the Seven Isles and closer than the Lone Isles. Uh-huh. Um, I'm going to show you uh, the map, just since I have it open already. Uh-huh. It is map. right off the coast of Ker Paravel. Oh, you could probably see it on a clear day. Probably. It's like the Channel Islands from, you know... Our, our part of the world. Yeah, all of Santa Barbara and Ventura County. Uh-huh. It's Galma. We should sail out there. Yeah, we should. <laughs> I'm also looking for one of the other Narnia maps right now to see. Yeah, and you'll notice that in the Prince Caspian map, that's conveniently uh, where the compass is drawn, so you can't see the land there on that map. Ah, there we go. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's clever. Uh, anyway, no, I just wanted to establish that because, like, you know, you wouldn't think anybody in Narnia knew how to build an actual, like, sailing ship. And, like, there's a there's a vast difference from building, like, a riverboat to building, like, an actual, like, three-masted, like, Are you going to be ship. done complaining about your fantasy, like, <laughs> dragon-shaped boat? Like, no, I'm how not. did they know what dragons looked like? Yeah, I don't know. It's That's... been a thousand years of Telmarine rule, yep. and they don't even want to believe that dwarves exist, much less a dragon. Yeah. I don't know. They, they heard tail from other lands. Uh, anyway, so on to the actual journey. Uh, the first stop we make on the boat in this grand island hopping adventure that we're going to get started on, uh, we go to Galma. We meet the king there. There's like a, you know, a grand tournament that Caspian competes in. He knocks some people down. Knocks some people down. He does some. <laughs> he does some jousting. He's he's given off some some corn energy. I know. Cor- I, my first thought was corn would have loved this. <laughs> like, gosh, if he was still around, he'd be there. Um, so he does that. Uh, doesn't marry the king's daughter, who like squints and has freckles. <sighs> like Caspian doesn't get it. Okay. Oh, poor girl. Yeah, <laughs> that's what Lucy says. Uh, I'm just, I'm, Caspian uh, says squints and has freckles, and Lucy goes, "Oh, poor girl." Uh, all I'm gonna say is like the squints thing, kind of understand the freckles thing completely. He's wrong. He's wrong about that. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, moving on. Says the squinty <laughs> man to the woman he married with no freckles. Yep. <laughs> um, so he didn't marry her. Um, then they sailed off from Gama. Uh, they ran into some Terabinthian pirates. And I think Terabinthia we've mentioned before. That's a... We what? mentioned it. Uh, it, it was mentioned by name, I believe, in Prince Caspian as one of the lands that he rules. Or had, like, that king... It was in the letter that Edmund delivered to Moraz on behalf of Peter. Uh-huh. That he was, like, a lord of Terabinthia. Yeah. Um, and... Terabinthia is. You're getting a lot of mileage out of this map here. You're yeah, right. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, I mean, it's helpful. It's got all the names on one page. I don't have to flip around. Mm-hmm. So Terabinthia is the next stop that they make. 
they they go there. Do they get on the land there? Uh, is that the don't. one that has a plague or whatever, and they're uh, warned off from? Or let's was see. That... Let's see what it says. Uh, the king sent out a warning not to land there for their sickness in Terabinthia. Yeah. Okay, so they go to Terabinthia. They get a warning not to come in because there's a plague. Yes. Um, there's a virus of some kind, and then um, so they they go around, make landfall, get fresh water, and all of that, and then wander off and get attacked by a Terabinthian pirate ship. Yeah. Which they run off by shooting with more arrows and being better fighters. Yeah. Um, and again, like you've mentioned, this kind of gap in knowledge of sailing. Um, Terabinthian pirates should be much better skilled <laughs> sailors than the Narnians and, and Telmarines who have only been sailing if for three years at max three years. You would think, but at the same time, I feel like with the way the world is presented, uh, there really isn't and hasn't been a nation with a strong navy for a very long time. So, like, there it might does be seem that way, there yeah. might be pirates who are just like not expecting any resistance because nobody has warships, so they're just like, hey, whatever. Yeah. Um, and like you know, merchant trade vessels wouldn't necessarily be armed. Um. So it kind of makes sense. Uh, I also do like that, and I'm assuming we're going to get a lot of this in this book, that we're establishing a lot of the world of, you know, that Narnia exists in. And it, it, it establishes that, and I never know what to call the planet, because Narnia is a country. We have, no, we have never had a name for the planet that Narnia is on. Yes. Which is difficult, uh, because you can't refer to the entire thing as Narnia. Um, but the world Narnia exists in, we're establishing more of that and more details that they all, it's a much bigger place. Like there's a bunch more people out there. Like there's, there's drama and there's things going on that have nothing to do with Narnia. Yeah. So like, absolutely. and since this is an island hopping story, we're going to get a lot of that. I'm assuming, uh, anywho. So we deal with the pirates, run them off and then they Reef get cheap is disappointed that we didn't, you know. <laughs> Run them all through. He would have hanged every mother's son of them. That's yes. what he says. <laughs> every mother's son. Reaper Chief is a bloodthirsty son of a gun. Um, and then they hit the Seven Isles, uh, which the, you know, Mule, 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 M-U-I-L. How do you say that? I would say Mule. Mule. Uh, that's the first one. That's the westernmost one that they get into. They uh, go and have a party. Because what else do you do when you hit the Seven Isles? You have a party. I wonder if Bacchus showed up there. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of where they are. They're, they they're... went to the Isle of Red Haven on the Isle of Bren within the Seven Isles. Yep. And they were there for um, feasting and victuals and water. Yep. And then um, they headed down to the Lone Islands after the Seven Isles. And it's about uh, most of the way there. That they joined the ship. Yep. And if you look at my map, there is a note that says, about here they joined the ship. Okay. So this is, mm -hmm. they went this way and up there, and then they're coming down to the Lone Islands, and that is where they met the ship. Now, the old Lone Islands are closer to Kellerman than to Narnia, ah. uh, because Kellerman has a long jutting out of a peninsula type thing there yeah. that goes out to the Lone Islands, and I find it very interesting that Kellerman never, like, 
took over the Lone Islands because they had ships and they're much closer than Narnia is. I mean, maybe they did, but it's also been a thousand years since we last saw Callerman, so who knows what's even going on in that kingdom. True. It's like the whole thing could have collapsed by now. I mean, it's still on the map in this book, so Callerman clearly still exists. Yeah. Hey, historically, in our world, uh, I believe the rule is that no single empire has ever lasted more than 300 years. That's about the, the upper limit for for how long an empire can maintain a coherency. So maybe that applies here. And they've been, you know, dissolved into smaller states or something for centuries at this point. But who knows? Um, anyway, so we established where we are. We're established we're going to the Lone Islands. Uh, uh, we skipped over something very important, though. Okay. Uh, we have another prophecy. We do. For- from the... Druid lady. Yep. Who sang over Reepicheep. Dryad. Sorry. Yeah. From the Dryad lady mm-hmm. who sang over Reepicheep while mm-hmm. he was in his cradle. Yep. You know. And I was gonna I was gonna read that here. Please this is do. the this is the prophecy of Reepicheep. Where sky and water meet, where the waves grow sweet, doubt not Reepicheep. To find all you seek, there is the utter east. Yes. So there we go. That's that is why he wants to go because he thinks he's going to find his destiny out there. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Uh like maybe we'll find Aslan's own country. Uh but Reepicheep has this whole thing that he's going to find. That's why I included the sentence I expect to find Aslan's own country in my summary because I felt mm-hmm. like this prophecy was important. Yeah. It's a it's a big deal and you know it's vague. We we don't know what this could mean. Could mean all sorts of things for Reepicheep. I will say you know, the line where sky and water meet isn't really helpful. You just <laughs> keep that's going like, to the horizon that's until like the it's end- <laughs> not, the, not the horizon anymore. Um, but other than that, yeah. So we'll see what comes to that. That's a, that's a fun little tidbit for later, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so we're anyway, heading off to the Lone Islands. Uh, and it's at that point that we figure out we should probably go check on Eustace. Yep. And to that end, Lucy gets her cordial back. Yep. Because, like, this is not a thing that can ever come with her into Earth. Like, it has to stay in Narnia, and she just gets it back every time she comes. I mean, it's it was a good idea uh, for Caspian to bring it with him on this journey. I mean, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. It is a valuable thing that he would want to have with him as the king and steward of it at this point. Like, Yeah. Uh, would be helpful. Um, so she gets that, and then we go down to check on Eustace, who is seasick. And he's uh, laying down and... Whining. Laying down, whining. Um, We also have a lot more interaction with Drinian, the captain, that we haven't really mentioned at all. We haven't because, like, Drinian is not really established as a character here. Like, we're introduced He's the one who's like, oh, and he unhorsed many knights. Yeah. I got a few (laughs) nasty falls myself, Drinian, and unhorsed (sighs) many knights. Uh You know, like... He's just like so proud of his king. Yeah, his he's Caspian's hype man here. Um, yeah, I mean that's a he he also has an AN name, so maybe he's an Arkenlander in the you know he may very well be the the brother of Drenny <laughs> or just Dren. Yeah. yeah, but Caspian is also an AN name. Yeah. And oh wait, the, no, we've no, established no, no. this is a Telmarine feature. IN names, IN names. Yeah, Never I mind. Am. Cut all that out. I'm, I sound stupid. Well, because like we, we have Revillian, uh, Octessian, K 
Caspian, and Drinian. So it yeah. seems to be a common feature of Telmarine. Yeah, you can just well. you can just cut all that out. Um, <laughs> I don't want to. No, it's not like I've spent the past two years of my life doing a podcast on these books and exhaustively analyzing them. <laughs> I shouldn't know anything. Um, anyway, so we go to do to do. Sorry. Just reminding myself of where we were. Uh, check on Eustace, and Lucy gives him a drop of her cordial. And yes. he feels much better and is still complaining about the storm that they're caught in. Yeah. And Jordan's like, what storm? The extreme storm here. This uh, is a fair, this is as fair weather as a man could ask for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is not enjoying the motion of the ocean very much. <laughs> Uh, and he wants to lodge a disposition, which Reaper Cheap is like, he wants to find out oh, how to do that. He's ready to fight him. <laughs> oh, you want to fight me? Okay. Uh, and there's all this tension here between Eustace and Reaper Cheap that uh, is brewing on the ship. Oh, yeah. Um, as Reaper Cheap does not like him very much at all, and Eustace is not a fan of giant mice. Um, and we convince Eustace that there's no possible way of sending him back to back home at this point. He's in for the long haul. Uh, He's just kind of here. Which, I mean, they could just drop him off on a lone island. I don't think anybody would really care. Uh, well, they said, and he said he demanded to be put out at the nearest port. Yeah. And they said, we're going as fast as we can to the nearest land that we know. Yeah. We will gladly leave you there. <laughs> they are there on the way. And then we get like a, you know, uh, then we get a tour of the ship, kind of. Like we, we go through and we see all the parts of the ship, which is not very large. Like, it's a tiny little sailboat. Uh, yeah, we, did we establish why it's so small? Like, I mean, not really. I mean, it was, it's, they're, they're kind of new at shipbuilding at this point again, because they're rebuilding their navy, and like, Caspian's like, this is the finest ship I've built yet. And Lucy and Edmund are just like, we had bigger ones. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's nothing compared to the old Narnian navy. Yeah, I mean, which is fair. Like, they've also only just... Mm-hmm. reawoken to the trees and in order to build ships you need to have tree cooperation and you need to harvest dead trees um so i think that it makes a lot of sense that they only have small wood to work with <laughs> to make a small boat yeah i guess i guess that's a question here because like we we've established like you know basically all or a lot of the trees in narnia are like living souls at this point so how has this historically worked how it's did like, they do the bonfire yeah, the, the trees well, rip their branches yeah, off. Like it's just like you can't do that for like building things. So you need like the action, the whole tree. You need to you know cut into the trunk and like yeah. So they have to they have to have the trees yeah. collect their dead. Uh, is there like a calling here where like <laughs> no? Where like every year there's a tree lottery and like the trees I... are just like all right these are the ones that get to survive. No, uh, <laughs> oh no, no. It's like some Hunger Games stuff. <laughs> boat games um anywho the tree games god forest forest fires got to be horrifying in narnia yeah Jeez, it's like it the more you think about the world of narnia it's just the the more like you know kind of dark and 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 i don't want to say spooky horrifying yeah it's it's can be a can be a pretty horrifying place i i kind of understand why uncle andrew went crazy (laughs) um Anywho, uh, but she's a fine ship. Uh, it's every spar and rope and pin was lovingly made. Mm. Uh, you know, she's gilded. She's super fancy. Ship fit for a king. 
and then we go back to Eustace, and Luce, and Eustace, Eustace writes this letter home. Uh, well, this is his. He's a diary. he has a book. Yeah, he had a black notebook that he used to keep his grades in, so that he could show off that he got better grades than other people. Hmm. Um, even though he didn't really care about his marks, uh, he would go to people and say, "I got so much. What did you get?" Mm-hmm. Um, and so that book has become his kind of diary now. And so I have a feeling we're going to keep coming back to Eustace's diary. Uh-huh. And I think that uh, it's going to be fun. Yeah. Um, we have this diary. I do want to say, uh, minor correction, it says he he cared a great deal about Marx. Oh, I'm sorry. So he, di- he didn't care about any particular subject, but he really, like... That was, sorry, he didn't yeah. care about the subjects. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was one of those things here where I want to point out and say that I think... And I obviously he cared about grades and not about knowledge. Yes, uh, which Lewis uh, that rubs him the wrong way. Uh, but going through this book, I think that Eustace is probably going to be the most complex character in the entire series that we've hit so far. Okay. Because I feel like there's a lot to him, mm-hmm. and it's going to be interesting. Where you know he's he's portrayed as this very disagreeable sort of kid who's like really annoying and really uh, you know he's the He's the odd cousin out who, like, doesn't want to do the things that everybody else enjoys and is, like, the dork. But at the same time, I feel like he has redeeming character traits. Or I feel like he has things about him that could be positive. And so there's a, you know, there's a lot of conflict within the character of Eustace. And this is one of those moments, like this in the next page, where, you know, he cares about doing well in school. Like, he can't fault him for that. He cares like, about good grades. He doesn't care <sighs> about learning, though. There is a distinct difference there. Yeah. It's like he, he doesn't care about coming out of it with more knowledge. He comes. He cares about coming out of it with status and something he can brag about. Yeah, I suppose so. But like, I'm I'm trying to find positive qualities in Eustace here. Like, he cares about doing well in school. They call him a king. I said I was a Republican, <laughs> but he had to ask me what that meant. Uh huh. And I I would have to do more research into like what the Republican Party in 1950s England was all about. <laughs> It's like I'm. I'm sure that has no real parallel to our modern American Republican system. Yeah. No. So we'd have to figure out what they're what they're into. Um, also establishes in this diary entry that you know he he is an egalitarian. Like he believes in equal rights for women, which you know Caspian doesn't, and that's something that rubs him the wrong way. And <laughs> which is like, great because you know. I tried to make him see what Alberta says, that all that sort of thing is really lowering girls, but he was too dense. Yeah, see, like, this is a redeeming moment for, for Eustace, I feel like. He's just like... He's, he's listen- a feminist. Yeah, he's a feminist. He's listening to his mom. His mom's trying their hardest out there. And, uh, and you know, at this point in the world, it's very difficult for women. Like, she, she's ahead of the times. And, like, this is, you know, presented in the book as being, like, a negative quality. <laughs> It's like, he's into equal rights for women, that silly kid. Like, <laughs> Well, I think, I think the way that it's presented here is that he's upset that he is in a room with two other people that's a smaller room than uh-huh. what Lucy is in by herself. Yeah. You know, and, and I would say, like, if I was Lucy, I would offer to switch rooms. I would go to the smaller room by myself and let the three boys have the larger room upstairs. Yeah, yeah, like, that's, yeah. like, that makes Lucy sense. Like, what's Lucy doing here? But... For the king's and queen's role, like, uh-huh. there's a certain level of king and queen honor that needs to happen there. Uh-huh. And we're forgetting that Eustace is the only non-royal in this argument. Like, 
Yeah. There are two kings and a queen and Eustace. Yeah. Like, if anything, in this proper, Lucy should get the big room, Edmund and Caspian should get the smaller room, and yeah. Eustace should be sleeping in a hammock with the crew. Mm-hmm. By the way, uh, Nathan, when you're listening to this, that should be the title of your next album, uh, Two Kings and a Queen and Eustace. <laughs> Two Kings, a Queen, and Eustace. <laughs> yeah, it's a great <laughs> album title. Um, anyway, so he finishes this diary entry. Um, yeah, really upset about everything. Uh, and I do, I, I hope you're right. I, th- I hope we get more diary entries because they, they present a uh, an interesting window into the mind of Eustace, which is not a thing that we get with a lot of characters. Yeah. It's, or like it's, their private thoughts. It's a very different writing style yeah. for Lewis because we are getting private thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as I'm flipping through, I don't see any more diary entries until chapter five. Okay. So, yeah. but I do see several diary entries in chapter five. Ooh, exciting! So I'm I'm excited. Uh, but then the trouble started with Reapa Cheap and Eustace. Oh yeah. Um, and Eustace thinks he is going to, you know, pull a prank on Reapa Cheap and like swing him around by his tail. And, and this is you know this is a you know another. Uh, gosh, I need to write down words before I do this podcast. Down slope, a low point. I don't know. This is a low point in Eustace's character uh, because he's he's just going to go and assault Reaper Cheap for no good reason. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Which seems like kind of a jerk move. Uh, but Reaper Cheap is up on the forecastle. He's looking out at the waves. And, you know. You know. Singing his song. Yep, singing his song, being like little sailor mouse. He's yep. adorable. Uh, and then Eustace is just like, I'm going to come up behind him and grab him by the tail and swing him around because you know. That's a cool thing to do. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and he does that, and Reaper Cheap doesn't take it well, obviously, as one But Reaper Cheap ha- is, is been in battle and doesn't lose his head and pulls out his sword and stabs Eustace in the hand while being swung around bodily by him. Yep. Uh, and, you know, he fights back, and he's just immediately like, Eustace, pull out your weapon. If we're going to duel, we're going to do this right now. Like, come on, bro. Come at me. Yeah. Um, we have this weird little moment where it's like Eustace comes running into the to the dining hall and get being chased by Reepicheep and Reepicheep apologizes for interrupting. Oh, uh, if I I ask your pardons all and expect, especially Her Majesty's, if I had known that he would take refuge here, I would have awaited a more reasonable time for his correction, and then. So here's what really happened. Eustace went up to the forecastle and swung Reepicheep around, and Reepicheep challenged him to a duel. Uh-huh. At uh, which point Eustace said, I'm a pacifist! Which he shouldn't start fights if he's a pacifist. Like, that seems like kind of a dumb idea for him. It is, right? Um, inconsistencies. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it points to the fact that Eustace doesn't respect that Reepicheep is a character, is a person has autonomy Uh like that's kind of what it points to because if he's like i'm gonna i'm gonna go be a bully to this person and not expect to get hit i'm Uh not treating this person like a person of value yeah like if you're not expecting to get hit like but then he gets hit and he gets Uh hit and uh reap chief's just like i'm not gonna actually stab you because you don't have a weapon but i will beat you with the flat of my blade uh yes (laughs) over and over uh, you know, and of course Eustace was at a school where they didn't have corporal punishment. Yep, this was the this was a new experience for him entirely, getting hit with a rod. 
which is also painted as a bad thing in this book, which I think is another weird view of Lewis's. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, of course, Eustace didn't go to a school where they beat the children. I mean, that's why he's, you know, as screwed up as he is. It's like... <sighs> anyway. Um, <laughs> so we have this fun moment, uh, and then all the, you know, the captain and Caspian and everybody are just like, well, this is a serious offense. Obviously, this is going to be a duel take I mean, place. so like, are Edmund and Lucy, too. They're they're both right on, oh, sh- should we should we handicap Eustace for this duel? Like, does that uh, need to happen? Because of the fact that he's, uh, he's so much taller. Uh-huh. Like, what are the proper uh, systems that need to be in place for this duel to happen? Yep, and then at the talk of that, he backs down. He and apologizes, as he you said, sulkily. Yeah, uh, you said you wanted to talk about this line, this last I line did. of the chapter. Lucy, uh, he went off with Lucy to have his hand bathed in bandage and went to his bunk. Lucy is the one with the cordial, uh-huh. and she does not use it. Well, she can't use it on every like sprain and bruise that anybody gets. But like... regardless, uh-huh. even if she wanted to, she doesn't. Uh-huh. And I think that that is a moment of, like, her saying, like, I eat Eustace, you gotta shape up, like, you're gonna deal with this pain. Uh-huh. And I think that also might be part of this idea of handicapping Eustace in a battle with Reepicheep, and that they're not going to send him into this duel, like, fully fit and cared for and, like not bruised and not injured and not bandaged well so i mean like but he apologizes which seems to imply that the that the duel will be taken out of like consideration at this point well i mean even even whole and not bandaged like reaper sheep would slaughter him oh like, yeah oh <laughs> yeah absolutely like but like i, I think that it's interesting that lucy as the holder of the chalice of healing uh-huh. is taken to care for is taking and caring for his wounds yeah without healing him <laughs> like i don't know i just thought that that was something to to touch on of import yeah um yeah so that's that's what happens here long chapter uh we do really get some some interesting character insights into eustace i'm not sure we really have any i mean other than that one moment with lucy we don't really develop anybody else a whole lot we know a little bit about drinian mm-hmm. uh you know kind of have more more caspian moments where we see him as a a leader in charge of things yep and to see what kind of king he is uh anything we didn't really cover uh no i think we really touched on everything in this chapter so far uh-huh um i mean uh we had a little more on the tour of the ship where they had seen all around it um the rapey cheap calls Eustace a poltroon. Yes, oh, which is a which is a coward. Okay, I I looked that one up, um, and that is a an utter coward. Like okay. that is, come on, you poltroon is like, <laughs> you utter coward. Cool. All right. Well, that's chapter two. Yeah. Next week we're going to the Lone Islands. Yep. Would we like to move on to our uh, rewrites? Sure. Um, before we do that, the last thing I wanted to mention, there's always been a lot of kind of discussion that the book Bridge to Terabithia is a, a reference to Narnia because in the book, Leslie, the, one of the main characters, is constantly referring to Narnia. Uh-huh. Um, and 
a lot of people conflate Terabithia with Terabinthia, yeah. as it is mentioned here in this book. They are different lands. They are different yes. spellings. Um, but it is very much this kind of idea of like a magical land mm-hmm. that you could get into. So yeah. anyway, I just thought it would be in, like important to point that out, that that's something that I conflated the first time that I read this book, where I was like, Terabithia? Is that Terabithia? <laughs> You know, I was like, oh, no, no, that's Terabinthia. Not the first time. But when I read Bridge, when I read these books after having read Bridge to Terabithia at some point in my college career. Yeah. Anyway, whatever. Just pointing that out. Mm-hmm. They're different. Uh, I, w- I would also like to point out fun facts. Uh, since Lewis yeah, goes on about, you know, the differences between like a steamship that Eustace is really into and like a sailing ship. Uh, I... I guess I have the unique experience of having been on board a sailing ship, but I've never been on board a steamship. Oh, you have the opposite yeah. experience. There yeah. you go. So I don't know how steamships do. You've been on a tall ship. Too. Yes, yeah. I have. Uh, so maybe maybe someday we'll go on a steamboat if those still exist. <laughs> or just they do. any engine run ship, you know, like. Well, I've been on I've been on engine run ships before. Okay. Well, just you just want to go on a steamship. Yeah, you want to. I mean, I could. We got to go to the Mississippi and go on a riverboat. Well, I was going to say when everything reopens, I can take you to the Queen Mary to do the tour of the Queen Mary. Yeah. Uh, yay plans! Let's talk about more <laughs> of our our plans for the reopening of the world on the podcast. Um, <laughs> anywho, the uh, Queen Mary, as mentioned in this uh, very chapter, in fact, yeah. by Eustace. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's go on to our rewrites. Mm-hmm. As we are reading through the chapter, we each. In addition to doing our summaries, we each choose five sentences to try to create a new story out of the chapter and do what we call our rewrite, our Narnia chopped and screwed. And so in this chapter, we are doing the same thing. I know it's weird that we would stay on format. I know. But um, I'm going to go ahead and go first since you went first with your summary. Sure. And I'll read my rewrite. Go for it. Hashtag Narnia chopped and screwed. What did you get? I haven't got one, said Eustace. I don't believe in fighting. His sword was drawn and his whiskers looked very fierce, but he was polite as ever. All the others pretend to take no notice of this, either from Swank or because Harold says one of the most cowardly things ordinary people do is to shut their eyes to facts. Okay, okay. Get it? Well, where were you going with that one? I think it's just a character that I'm envisioning. Like uh-huh. it's it is it is re envisioning Eustace as this. Um, oh, I don't have a sword. Holding a sword, uh-huh. you know. Oh, I don't believe in fighting. But he's got fierce looking whiskers, and he's being polite as ever. Uh-huh. And everyone is pretending to take no notice, whether it's out of cowardliness or swank. No. But they're all ignoring this this character that's forming here of this sword bearing fierce pacifist uh-huh. hashtag he got swank yep um <laughs> yeah i get you no. i don't know it was just a really cool image in my head that got built up of this like just ooh, everyone's ignoring the fact that he has his sword drawn and that he oh but i don't believe in fighting as he holds his sword you know mm-hmm. yeah i feel you uh i went in a similar direction with mine actually uh, where I kind of reimagined this interaction between Reepicheep and Eustace. Okay. Uh, so here is mine. 
There was not much difficulty in settling the matter once Eustace realized that everyone took the idea of a duel seriously, and heard Caspian offering to lend him a sword, and Drinian and Edmund discussing whether he ought to be handicapped in some way to make up for his being so much bigger than Reepicheep. But unfortunately, Reepicheep, who had fought for his life many a time, never lost his head even for a moment. And we gave those troublesome giants on the frontier such a good beating last summer that they pay us tribute now. And unhorsed many knights, repeated Drenian with a grin. Do I understand, said Reepicheep, withdrawing his sword for a moment and speaking very sternly, that you do not intend to give me satisfaction? I know you lost something, Mary, because I had to read all the sentences like three times. <laughs> no, but like the... I, I, I get what you're doing, because you're creating a much more ominous moment. Uh-huh. Yes. But you're also not writing a new story, it feels like. You're just... You're just giving more intensity to the role of Reepicheep. No, I, I was trying to turn Reepicheep around because, like, the the scene where, you know, the, the opening line here where, you know, Drenny and Caspian are talking about this duel coming up, I feel like in the book is very tongue-in-cheek because they're, like, kind of goading Eustace on and being like, oh, yeah, this is very serious. You need to, you know, we'll get you a sword. You need to fight this guy. Yeah. And, like, this was my take on Reepicheep being in on the joke. And, you know, boasting about himself and being like, yeah, you know. Okay. Let's. And he's there participating in this egging on of Eustace. I gotcha. Uh-huh. And... Which I feel like is in character <laughs> for Reepicheep to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like Reepicheep has zero sense of humor, though. So. <laughs> he's uh, he's much too serious for that. Oh, you'd think he takes himself too seriously. That's, that's, that's interesting. Uh-huh. All right. Well, with that said, our next segment that we go into is our baseless speculation in uh-huh. which Chris, who has never read these books before, uh, the podcast, speculates on what he thinks is coming in this book based on what he's read so far. So what do you think about this chapter adding to your theories from last week? You've confirmed one, at yes, least. Yes, have confirmed one. Uh no, this one's this one's hard because like a lot of this chapter is just like, hey, here's a tour of the boat, and it's very clinical. Uh, it doesn't give us a lot of plot. So we have a, a couple things. We we talk about the boat. We do talk about this prophecy in the east, which we could get into a little bit. Um, but I I want to tie this into uh, my my idea earlier about like the horrifying vision of you know the the sentient trees uh, sacrificing themselves to being turned into to ships and whatnot. I think maybe maybe the ship has some degree of autonomy. Interesting. Okay. Like, maybe the ship is aware of, you know, stuff and things. Not necessarily that it's sentient, but it has some degree of self-awareness or some degree of, like, control over, uh, you know, how it be, for lack of a better word. Does that... Does that tie in at all to the cover art of the dragon crying in your in your copy of the book and the fact that the ship is shaped like a green dragon? I don't know. Could be could be something there. Um, but I would say maybe the ship is sentient, has some awareness, uh, and and maybe Eustace, like you know, trapped aboard this vessel and not having any, uh, you know friends and anybody else because uh, everybody else is kind of shunning him for one reason or another, and he's not really forming relationships here, ships here. Maybe he forms a bond with the ship. Like maybe maybe him and the a ship. A relation ship. Yes. It's a relationship. <laughs> uh where where Eustace and his lonesomeness decides to start talking to the ship just out of sheer boredom and the ship talks back. You mean he's writing on paper? 
Uh-huh. And maybe the book, like maybe the ship is aware of the paper. Yeah. And, and the thoughts of <laughs> Eustace and his inner dialogue and his frustrations. Yeah, there you go. So that's, uh, yeah, that's the redemption of Eustace comes from him forming a bond with this loving vessel that they're sailing across the world in. Interesting idea. Uh, I don't hate it. I like what it does to your to the world. I mean, uh-huh. it kind of redeems some of that scariness of the, the, the trees being called for ships. <laughs> Um, what about Trumpkin? Oh man, of course this is going to be a power grab for Trumpkin. Oh no, 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 don't put that on the DLF. (laughs) I don't know. Um, no, I think, I think Trumpkin make a fine regent. Like I think, no, I think Trumpkin doesn't have Tumnus energy. Uh, I think he's too scared of, of Aslan at this point to actually do anything that would threaten the rule of Caspian or you know, change Narnia in any meaningful way. Fair. So he's he's going to be a, you know, a very to-the-letter regent, just like following Caspian's orders, because he's just like, he's got that image of Aslan tossing him in the air in the back of his head. <laughs> it's just like, he'll come back and do that. Not for me. Yeah. Where, you know, that was that was where Tumnus's, like, resolve came from, was like, in Tumnus's whole lifetime, he'd never seen Aslan, and he'd, like, Tumnus never had an interaction with Aslan at all, like, saw him at a distance. But, uh, as he, far as we he know, was never... turned from stone back into a living creature by Aslan breathing on him. Yeah. In the witch's house. Yeah, I guess that's the closest they get to interaction. But like they never had this moment where Aslan was just like, Sup, Tumnus. <laughs> you gonna you gonna believe in me now? Like that never happens. So, you know, as far as Tumnus <laughs> is concerned, like Aslan's just like whatever. Um anyway, we're talking about Trumpkin. Uh he doesn't do anything. What's to the east though? What are they gonna what are they gonna find out there? Um Aslan's, Aslan's country, I imagine, uh, and there's a great line in this chapter that says, do you think Aslan's country is a place one could sail to? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I'd agree with that line of thought in saying, uh, I see Aslan's country as, uh, being very much like the Undying Lands and Lord of the Rings were like, which you still sail to, which you sail to, but you have to sail in a very specific way. Uh, and only the elves know how to do it. And you can't just, like, go out on the ocean and eventually end up there. Because it's not necessarily a place that's in the world. Um, but also, we, you know, you have mentioned before, and, like, this is a thing we've talked about a little bit, that uh, Narnia is not a sphere. It is a disc world. Which has not yet been established do in we, what do we've we, read. Do we finally find that out in this book? Yes. Okay. <laughs> now, does that does that make more sense of where the sky meets the water? Yeah, a bit. Like, because I, there is a point of that in a Discworld. Yeah. So we'll see. Maybe they have to sail off the edge to get to Aslan's country. Uh, though I, I did have this whole rant I wanted to go on to about, like, if we establish that Narnia is a Discworld, like, what that does to physics. Um, <laughs> because we, we talk about, you know, the sun rising and the sun setting uh, in Narnia, which... On a spherical world, as we know, is a product of the rotation of the planet. And, you know, we're just seeing the sun come up over the horizon as the Earth rotates toward it. In a disk world, how does that work? Like, is it just flipping through space like a coin over and over and over again? Why don't you reach out to your friends who are flat earthers and they can give us a (laughs) summary of this, Uh how this works? Does, like, does does the universe of Narnia operate on completely different laws of physics where the sun is revolving around the planet? Like... It raises so many questions for me. Doesn't it just? It, it does. So hopefully, 
hopefully we get real deep into the physics of uh of flat narnia in this book and we can finally read our cosmology of narnia book that we've had sitting around forever yeah you should probably read that soon i didn't want to read it because i feel like there's going to be spoilers that i shouldn't be aware of that's fair absolutely true Yeah. yeah Well, that'll we'll have to do a separate piece on that after we finish the whole series, and we'll do an episode or two on the cosmology of Narnia okay. as our as our wrap up. Anyway, so that's my jumbled mess of speculation that I have. Uh, cool, good we stuff. Can... Mm-hmm. All right, well, I think I think that that's about all we have to say on this chapter so far. Closing thoughts: uh, We define Poltroon. Um, yeah. I had my little rant about Terabithia. Terabithia. Yep. Those are all my notes. <laughs> yep. Okay, cool. I think we're good. So, uh, so listeners, thank you so much for joining us today as we discuss Chapter 2. Join us next week as we discuss Chapter 3 of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, The Lone Islands. In the meantime, you can interact with us on social media at chronically podcast on facebook and instagram at chronically pod on twitter or you can email us at chronically podcast at gmail.com your fan art of what Reepicheep saw as he spun around by the tail when eustace threw him around you can also send us money at patreon.com slash chronically podcast if you feel like doing so we always appreciate it and yeah, uh, you, you have a you have a closing. Oh yeah, sorry. I was like, what do I do at the end <laughs> yeah, of this podcast? Gosh, it's been so long since we recorded, hasn't it? <laughs> and never mock a man, save when he is stronger than you. Then, as you please. And if you're a pacifist, don't start a duel with a magical night mouse. Oh, cheers. <laughs> See ya. Mouse Knight? Is he a Night Mouse or a Mouse Knight? Night Mouse sounds cooler. (laughs) It's a very loud bird outside. It's fine. It's ambiance. (laughs) You can send us a tweet or thoughts or a comment or email. I don't like doing this part. Um, (laughs) This part that you always do. So. No, it's not like I've spent the past two years of my life doing a podcast on these books and exhaustively analyzing them. I shouldn't know anything. He apologized. He apologized sulkily. Sulkily. He apologized sulkily. Are you going to be done complaining about your fantasy, like, (laughs) dragon-shaped boat? Like, how did they know what dragons looked like? Uh, And he is not enjoying the motion of the ocean very much. (laughs) (laughs) And and this is, you know, this is a, you know, another, uh... gosh, I need to write down words before I do this podcast. Downslope, a low point. I don't know. This is a low point in Eustace's character. <laughs>